This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Verse 7 and 8. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy and true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little strength and yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. This is written to the church in Philadelphia which together with the church in Smyrna receives nothing else but praise from the Lord Jesus Christ. And these people are but few in number. Notice, I know that you have little strength, few in number. And the Lord blesses them. He introduces himself with the phrase, He who is holy and true. And the next phrase, Who has the key of David. And what he is trying to say with the key of David, is that this is a direct reference to the messianic lineage. The words are based on Isaiah 22, verse 22. I will place on his shoulders the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. End of quote. It refers to Eli Eliakim, son of Hilkiah who served King Hezekiah as a faithful servant. So Eliakim received royal emblems of authority. He's the prototype of Jesus, the Messiah. Christ holds the scepter of God's kingdom and is the Son of God over his house and rules over all peoples. Now, the opening and shutting of doors must be interpreted in the context of Jews in Philadelphia. They opposed the admission of Gentiles whom Jesus warmly welcomed into the fellowship of the Christian church. The Jews themselves, however, were shut out of the kingdom of God even though they considered themselves God's chosen people. Now, Jesus says, I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. The two clauses about an open door and the inability to shut it seems to allude to the works performed by the church in Philadelphia. While the church in Sardis was idle, the Philadelphians were active, actively teaching and preaching God's word the gospel of Christ. Now, what is the meaning of an open door? First, the Greek indicates that this door has been opened and remains open, although the Lord can shut it again. Next, traffic is not going out through the door into the world but rather it is coming through the door into the kingdom. Third, the Lord has to open the door to make the work of evangelism possible and effective. Paul and Barnabas reported to the church in Antioch and Syria how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. God opens the door that no one is able to shut so that the people may enter into his presence. Wherever he opens doors for his workers, there he blesses their work of presenting the gospel. There the work of missions and evangelism flourishes, 
When converts come to faith in Christ, in spite of fierce opposition by the Jews in the synagogue of Satan, verse 9, a little band of faithful Christians in Philadelphia were assured of a blessing because Jesus had opened the door to Gentile converts. In short, God is sovereign in the work of salvation, for He either closes or shuts the doors of service. And the door that God opens is a stimulus to Christians to be actively engaged in the work of evangelism and missions. Now, we read little strengths that you have kept my word. What does Jesus mean when he said you have little strength? The word little precedes the noun strength and relates to the number of the saints in Philadelphia. In the eyes of local Jews, these Christians were so insignificant that they could not even be regarded as meaningful. In the course of Jesus' earthly ministry, the Lord encouraged the disciples with these words, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Two commendations serve to bolster the spirit of this little group of believers. They have kept the word of Jesus and have not denied his name. These two are opposites in a Hebraic parallel setting. The first is positive and alludes to the gospel of Christ. The second is negative with the word name embodying Jesus' revelation. Keeping the word of Jesus implies not that it should be hidden from view, but that it should be guarded from subversion. Not denying the name Im denies implies, pardon me, not denying the name signifies honoring it and at the same time making Jesus' revelation known to everyone. The word and the name of Jesus refer to God's special revelation expressed in both gospel and precept. Now verse 9. Look, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan and who call themselves Jews but are not, li are not lying. Look, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and admit that I have loved you. He says, look, I will make you make those of the synagogue of Satan who call themselves Jews but are lying. See the parallel between Revelation 2 verse 9 and 3 verse 9. In 2 verse 9 we read about the church in Smyrna, the ones who call themselves Jews but are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. In 3 verse 9, the church in Philadelphia will make those of the synagogue of Satan who call themselves Jews and are not, but are lying. These two congregations are commended. Now, the Jewish people who converted to Christianity were no longer tolerated in synagogues after the destruction of the temple and the city in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Talked about that yesterday, remember? Two decades later, Jewish leaders met in Jamnia, which is now Tel Aviv, to acknowledge the canon of the scriptures and to formulate the so-called 18 benedictions. The 12th petition in this prayer pronounces a curse on the apostates. I'll read it for you and with you. For apostates, let there be no hope, and the kingdom of insolence mayest thou uproot speedily in our days. And let Christians, Nashirim, and the heretics, Minim, perish in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life, and let them not be written with the righteous. Blessed are thou, O Lord, who humblest the innocent, the insolent. And there's the 18th petition. Prayer and of it the 12th petition.
Already in the middle of the first century, the Jews referred to Christianity as the Nazarene sect. After the curse of the heretics was formulated, the Jews denounced both Jewish and Gentile Christians during the worship services in the local synagogues. Even though no date, no text dating from the first century has survived, we can safely state that Jewish hostility toward Christians became increasingly pronounced. We discover evidence of this in Christian writings dating from the last part of the first century to the beginning of the second and in scattered references to Christianity in Jewish literature. Christianity Today, less than a year ago, had an article on Israel. And there in print, the writer said, when Israel on the 15th of May 1948 became a state, 17% of the population was Christian. Now in the year 2000, the Christian population is down to 1.5%. Now, it's easy to say, well, the Muslims have driven out the Christians. Perhaps. But it is also known that by the Jewish-Israeli Neset parliament, any Jew who becomes a Christian in Israel was expelled and many of them fled to Europe, to the United States and Canada. And then because of the international pressure, the Jewish-Israeli Neset changed the law. But they allow absolutely no Christian to enter Israel to do mission work. And they have suppressed the Palestinian Arab Christian communities to such an extent that these people leave. To us, it is sad that a race, the Jewish race, which suffered so much during the Second World War by way of oppression and persecution and losing six million of their own people now does the same thing to others. It is sad. I'm not going into politics. I'm supposed to be a theologian. <laughs> and I continue. Verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is to come upon the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Translations of verse 10 vary and Consequently, also the interpretations cautioning, cautioning the exegete not to be too dogmatic. Let us begin with the introductory word, because this conjunction reaches back to verse 8b. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. So that verse 9 serves as an exploratory note on this oppression of the faithful believers had to, had to endure. Next. Some commentators advocate continuity with verse B, 8B. You have kept my word. And continuity with verse 10. But the term word may have a different connotation when it is qualified to persevere. For then it takes on the meaning command. And third, there's sequence of the verb to keep in verses 8 and 10 which can be interpreted as to obey 
as you obeyed my word command. But if the verb to obey is adopted, the verbal balance in verse 10 has been destroyed. The choice therefore seems to lean toward the equilibrium of the verbs kept and will kept. Fourth, there is a position of the possessive pronoun my that is taken either as my word, command, or the word of my endurance. Even though the case could be made for either position, the construction my word calls for a measure of consistency in this matter. Nevertheless, Scripture teaches that having endured suffering himself, Jesus helps his people who now suffer because of their adherence to him. And the last, does the preposition from mean preservation or evacuation? This preposition, excuse me, this preposition can be interpreted to mean through in the sense of God keeping the believers safe during a period of hardship. It can also be argued that God removes his child away from the difficulties that are encountered. However, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus asks not that God take believers out of this world, but that he protect them from the onslaughts of the evil one. John 17:15. Jesus sends his people into the world with the assurance that he will preserve them as was evident in the life and ministry of Paul. The Lord promises that he will preserve his people in the hour of testing. And now we read the hour of trial that is about to come upon the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. I'm not going into the whole debate of dispensationalism. What I advise you to do is read the pros and cons as given by Robert Gundry in footnote number 28, Gregory Beale, Charles Ryrie, Ryrie, excuse me, David Winfrey, Thomas Edgar, Robert Thomas, John Walford, all of these people have something to say about the great tribulation. So, what shall we say? The word our, H-O-U-R, is not limited to 60 minutes, but rather denotes a period of time. But what does the word trial mean, and to whom does it apply? This term can mean temptation, testing, or trial, of which the last one fits the context. Here the meaning of trial is associated with the adversities, afflictions, and troubles that God is sending to His people to test their faith, holiness, and character. God is testing them and permits Satan to tempt them. For the Christians, this means that in times of temptation, they overcome through God's power and are strengthened in their faith. Times of testing come to any church and to all believers in every age. As the church in Smyrna was cast into a period of persecution, so the church in Philadelphia experienced its hour of trial. This does not mean that Christians will not suffer physical death in these periods, but that God protects them from spiritual death. They are the overcomers during the sojourn on this earth. The hour of trial is not limited to one particular event, but gives a telescoped picture of the entire range of trials. It concerns not merely Philadelphia, but refers generally to all the trials that precede the return of Christ. Furthermore, it encompasses the whole earth so that the entire church at one time or another before Christ's return 
endures severe tribulation. The phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, applies to unbelievers, as is evident from numerous passages in Revelation where it signifies the persecutors and the enemies of believers. God will test the unbelievers who persecute His people and will find them wanting. We conclude that in this verse, the term trial and the verb to try point to both believers and unbelievers. For Christians, this tribulation, besides being a threat to their physical safety, will also be a test of their faith, which, by the Lord's help, they will be able to withstand. For the enemies of the church, however, whether Jews or Gentiles, it will come as the deserved punishment for their wickedness. And then you have the promise. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. In Revelation, not chronological time, but its principle is significant. Keep that in mind, please. Centuries come and centuries go as the church continued to pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. There is no evidence when He will come, but the certainty of His return echoes throughout the book of Revelation. Okay. Jesus comes both to comfort His people and to avenge His enemies. Jesus instructs the church in Thyatira to hold fast to what they have. He likewise exhorts the Christians in Philadelphia to guard their spiritual possessions. He promises the church in Smyrna the crown of life. But here he states that the believers in Philadelphia already possess this crown. They possess the crown of a victor. Verse 12, I will make the one who overcomes a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he go out of it. I will write the name of my God upon him, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that is coming down out of heaven from my God, and upon him I will write my name. Now, what do we do with the word pillar? Does it refer to temples that are surrounded by pillars as you still find them in Greece today? Or plaques applied to pillars, attached to pillars in European cathedrals? Possible. The passage speaks not of pagan temples or Solomonic temples, but of the new Jerusalem that is coming down out of heaven. This means that the saints are honored within that heavenly temple, which in fact is nothing less than the very presence of God. This rules out then any idea of supporting pillars as in ancient temples. In short, the expression temple must be interpreted figuratively. God intends to honor His people in His sacred presence. Continuing... <clears throat> You have the personal pronoun a number of times. The name of the city of my God that is coming down out of heaven from my God. Upon him I will write my name. Three times in this verse the name name, the word name occurs. The third instance it is qualified by the adjective new. And now we can go into the history of Philadelphia, which changed names. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, was later on called Neo-Caesarea, New Caesar. And still later it was called Flavia, all to honor Roman emperors.
although the New Jerusalem mentioned here in passing is mentioned here in passing, John provides a detailed description of this city. This description is based on Ezekiel 48 where the details of the city are given with respect to dimensions, gates, tribes, and names. The prophet Ezekiel appropriately concludes this chapter by saying, chapter 48, And the name of the city from that time on will be, The Lord is there. Verse 35b. The name of the Lord is honored and revered. Believers in the city of Antioch were the first to receive the name Christian, that is, followers of Christ. But by entering the new Jerusalem, the Christian received Christ's new name. We are not told what this name is, but we are able to say that it pertains to the completion of Christ's redemptive work. This new name will no longer be mocked, but will be honored and revered. The Church of Laodicea. Verse 14, 15, and 16. 14, 15, and 16. And to the angel of the church and Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation says this, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Laodicea was closely related geographically to Colossae. Colossae is not mentioned in the seven letters. What we assume is that Paul trained seminary students who became pastors and then filled the pulpits in churches like Laodicea and Colossa and also Heriopolis. Heriopolis is also mentioned in chapter 4 of Colossians. And now Jesus identifies himself to the church in Laodicea by saying, I am the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. What you may do is make a study of the Hebrew text, the Old Testament, of the word Amen. It is joined in a doxology as a confirmation of what has been said. Preceded by the definite article, the Amen has become personified in the Hebrew text as the God of Amen. In translation, the God of truth. And then you have the terms faithful and true. They are both translations of the Hebrew expression Amen. Faithful and true witness is an echo of the Trinitarian greeting as we had it in chapter 1, verses 4b and 5. When Jesus refers to himself as the origin of God's creation, we see a close link to Paul's epistle to the Colossians, which was read by the Laodiceans in worship services. The Lord calls himself the origin And now pay attention a moment to that word origin. I'm on page 169. Page 169, second paragraph. The Lord calls himself the origin, Greek arche, of God's creation. We should not interpret the word origin passively as if Jesus were created or recreated, but actively because Jesus is the one who generates and calls God's creation into being. 
What then is the purpose of this description? To show that Jesus Christ made all things and thus possesses and controls them. Also, all things were made to serve Him. The message to the Laodiceans is that their boast in earthly riches is misplaced because all things belong to Jesus, who is, the, is worthy of praise and glory. In short, we have to look at the word arche, origin, in an active sense and not in a passive sense. Then Jesus says, I wish that your works were neither hot nor cold. Either hot or cold, not neither. Either hot or cold. Instead, they are lukewarm, spiritually speaking. We assume that the first generation Christians allowed us to accepted the gospel and were glowing with a spiritual fire and enthusiasm. Not so their descendants. They had no interest in being a witness for Jesus Christ, a living life of service for the Lord, or in preaching and teaching His gospel for the advancement of His church and kingdom. Although they possessed the Scriptures, they were apathetic, indifferent, and unconcerned about the things of the Lord. It is no wonder that Jesus said, I know your works with the implication that there were none. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now a geographic or topographic bit of side reference. The hot springs at a distance of six miles from Heriopolis sent water of medicinal quality down to Laodicea. By the time the water arrived there, it had cooled considerably, and because of the calcium carbonate in the water, it had a nauseating effect on the people who drank it. By contrast, Colossa, 11 miles away, was blessed with springs producing refreshing water that was cold and pure. And now Jesus is saying, because you're neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Note that Jesus does not say, I will spew you out of my mouth, but rather, I will spew you out. Once more, I will spew you, but I am about to spew you out of my mouth. Here is the grace of the Lord Jesus as he is giving the Laodiceans time to repent after they had read this letter. This epistle is meant to change the recipient's lukewarm attitude into eagerness to work for the Lord, for grace always continues to be given by the Lord and grace always precedes condemnation. Thanks to the Lord. The church in Laodicea had not become indifferent because of worldly interest, because worldly interest had chilled its proper fervor, but it had become ineffective because believing they were spiritually well equipped, its members had closed their doors and left their real provider outside. Well put. They had excluded Christ and thought they could do without Him. By doing so, they had become utterly ineffective as a church. Without Christ, the church is dead. I talked to a pastor in a given denomination, congregation, and he said to me, my people told me, please don't preach the gospel anymore. We don't want that. And he says, the Lord has called me to preach the gospel. I will continue. And he did. And eventually those people who said this left the congregation 
and the people who stayed with him continued to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord and lo and behold the church is growing. The Lord always blesses the faithful proclamation of his word. If it is not proclaimed, the church goes down. Okay, verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and have need of nothing, but you do not know that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Although we cannot determine whether the members of the church in Laodicea were affluent or not, we do know that the local citizens were wealthy and prosperous. The saying, I am rich and need nothing, also occurs in a diatribe of Epictetus, who records these words coming from an imperial bailiff. Because the saying was proverbial among the rich, here the words come from the mouths of the Christians in Laodicea, who had adapted themselves completely to the citizenry. Thus, instead of the church influencing society, the reverse had taken place with society leading the church. The word rich may point either to material or spiritual blessings. Did the members of the church identify with the local citizens who in the year 60 had rejected financial aid from Rome when Laodicea was devastated by an earthquake? Or does the context compel the reader to understand the word to refer to spiritual riches? The preceding passage, the verses 14 through 16, and the succeeding verse force commentators to adopt the second choice. The evidence indicates that the church had adopted the norms of Laodicea and carried them over into the spiritual realm. For instance, the city known as a financial center erected sizable buildings, gates and towers soon after the quake had destroyed the city. It took pride in being independent and its ability to help its neighboring's its neighbors suffering from the same disaster. The church members wholeheartedly approved of showing independence and helping one's neighbor. Consequently, they failed to see the difference between material and spiritual wealth. They boasted of their self-sufficiency and had no need of Christ. They were spiritually blind. Third, from a logical point of view, the order, the order being rich and having become wealthy is reversed. After one becomes affluent, he or she can say, I'm rich. But this inversion of the expected sequence occurs more often in the apocalypse and even in the fourth gospel. I'll give you one example. Angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which you find in John 1, 51. We would put this around. Angels come down from heaven, they descend, and then from the earth they ascend. This is found quite often among Jewish people, whereas we Westerners do it in a logical fashion. A is followed by B, and then you have C. This is how you operate. You think analytically. Jewish people do not. They jump to a conclusion and then after they have the conclusion then they work out the details. Last, not to have need of anything is inconceivable for the true believer who depends on God every moment, day and night for food and drink, home, shelter, clothing, protection, spiritual nourishment, encouragement, comfort, love, joy, happiness, and numerous other blessings. To be self-sufficient is the height of spiritual arrogance. For faith and trust in the Lord no longer function. <clears throat> Jesus continues and says, But you do not know that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
The contrast is introduced by the adversative word, but. Jesus says, I know your works. And now he tells the Laodiceans that they lack knowledge of themselves. He uses the personal pronoun you for emphasis in the singular to address the church as a whole. He describes the church with five adjectives of which the first one is wretched. It denotes the mundane condition of people who disregard divine essentials. A rich person who lacks the wealth that counts before God. In addition to being spiritually bankrupt, the wealthy are to be pitied. Jesus, pardon me, Paul uses the word pity in the superlative when he writes about people who doubt the resurrection. And he says, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Instead of being rich, the Laodiceans are spiritually poor because they are blinded by material possessions. And last, they stand naked before God and are unable to cover their shame. With only five adjectives, Jesus has described their miserable condition. The first two, wretched and pitiable, reflect the inner condition of the, of the Laodiceans. While the last three, poor, blind, and naked, describe both their internal and external condition. Now verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may be rich, and white garments to clothe yourselves with the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Instead of a harsh rebuke and sharp command, Jesus, Jesus counsels the Laodiceans and demonstrates His divine grace. He borrows language from the marketplace and alludes to an Old Testament passage. Come, Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Isaiah 55, 1. Appealing to people who boldly stated that they had no needs, the Lord invites them to buy refined gold from Him. By implication, He wants them to come to Him as destitute beggars who would never be able to buy this precious commodity. The Greek word gold refers to refined finely crafted products in jewelry, coins, not merely the metal itself. The money changers at the Laodicean bank handled currency on a daily basis, but Christ is counseling the people to come to Him and to buy. Yet His advice purposely omits money, for the transaction must take place without legal tender. They can obtain the gold only from Jesus. Notice <clears throat> the kind of gold that Jesus makes available. Gold refined by fire. It is gold that has been purif purified to such a degree that the glow of fire emanates from it. These words hint at a fiery trial that the followers of Christ are to endure. Gold is actually another word of for faith, which is far more precious than gold. Faith must be all important to the Laodiceans, for they should realize that Jesus is speaking to them in spiritual terms. What is at stake here is that all their impurities are to be burned away, so that their faith comes out of the fire intact. And as a consequence, their love for Christ is pure. He continues and talks about <clears throat> white garments to clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. In a city where the garment industry provided work and income for countless people, these words had a direct appeal. The black wool that the sheep produced was the color of the great majority of clothes manufactured there. <clears throat> Priests wore white garments, 
But now this attire is the eschatological attire of the saints who with the white color attest to holiness and purity. There is an allusion to the ancient of days. His clothing was white as snow. The reason for clothing oneself with white garments is to cover the nakedness of sin and thus not to be put to shame. The Old Testament provides a number of instances where either the reality or the threat of utter humiliation centered on being stripped naked. The Christians in Laodicea were spiritually naked for all the looms in this city could not wave cloth to cover their sins. Laodicea might supply the whole world with her tunics and clothing materials but righteousness was the white garment which God demanded. And this they must get from Christ. Only Jesus removes guilt, sin and guilt, for He alone can provide the white robe of righteousness. The medical school in Laodicea had become acquainted with the healing properties of the so-called Phrygian stone. This stone, which came from the nearby province of Phrygia, was ground to powder and made into anointment used to heal eye disease. The believers were blinded by self-deception, unable to see this with their spiritual eyes. With the eyesight that Jesus provides, the Laodiceans would be able to see their own sin in the light of God's Word and to walk with Jesus, who is the light of the world. The admonition, verses 19 and 20. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and I will dine with him and he with me. In these two verses, Jesus admonishes the church in Laodicea. As with much of his teaching, Jesus bases it on the Old Testament scriptures. The words, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, come from Proverbs 3.12. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Jesus changes the clause from the third person to the first person and adds the words reprove. Also, the Greek has the pronoun I at the beginning of the sentence for added emphasis. And last, the Lord speaks in general. He utters the pronoun those when he says, those whom I love, to indicate that love and discipline go hand in hand in renewing their relationship. Although the Greek verb agapao can be translated I truly love and the verb phileo I love, these verbs are often seen as synonyms. The word agapao appears in the letter to the church in Philadelphia, I have loved you, but the verb phileo is found here. This does not mean that Jesus loved the Philadelphians with true love, and the Laodiceans with affection, rather it signifies of the, within the context of rebuke and discipline, Jesus addresses the church in love. And then he talks about zealous and repent, being zealous. Here's a play on words. <coughs> the Greek shows a play on words in the adjective zestos, which means hot, from which we have the derivative zest and the verb zeluo, that is, be zealous in the imperative, zelue. They have the same root. Jesus tells them <coughs> to begin being zealous for him with a passion that generates spiritual fervor. Zeal is a necessary component of love for God. And now they must repent making a 180-degree turn by forsaking the past 
and adopting wholeheartedly the new life in Christ. Jesus said, Look, I stand at the door and knock. He's standing at the door of their heart and knocks to gain entrance. He calls them individually by continually rapping at the doors of their hearts as though the owners are asleep. Now I know the Lord opened Lydia's heart, Acts 16:14, but here he waits for the sinner to do so. Here the crux of divine action and human responsibility responsibility is evident. When these two appear with reference to God's electing grace in human beings, we encounter a mystery that defies human understanding. Scripture teaches God's intervention and human accountability as the two sides of the proverbial coin. And go to Philippians 2, the verses 12 and 13. Some scholars view this passage eschatologically as a parallel to the parable of the watchful servant. They relate the text of the second coming of Christ and contend that an eschatological interpretation agrees with a similar motif in Revelation. But formidable objections dissuade other commentators from seeing this parable in the context of the church in Laodicea, whom Jesus told to repent. The Lord stands at the door of their hearts, knocks repeatedly, and expects a response from them. The context of the watchful servant parable differs in its detail from this passage. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus not only stands at the door of a sinner's heart and knocks repeatedly, but he also speaks and calls him or her to repent And as soon as a person responds to Jesus' voice, Jesus enters. Note well that Jesus is fully in control for the emphasis in this sentence is not, is on Jesus who speaks, enters one's heart, and dines with the person who responds. It is clear that the responsibility for listening and responding to Jesus' voice rests with the hearer. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.